1: Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappy. I recently spoke with Luke Roberts about his book Performing the Great Peace: Political Space and Open Secrets in Tokugawa, Japan, that came out with the University of Hawaii Press in 2012. This was such a pleasure um, to do for me as an interviewer. Um Roberts is extraordinarily thoughtful about his own role as a historian, about the basic categories that go into writing history and writing political history um in particular. This is a book that will change the way you think about space. It'll change the way you think about political space and about what it is to read and work with documents to write a history. Um, it's it's just an extraordinarily innovative um, history of early modernity. Um, it's also quite engaging and very funny at times. And we had a really good time talking about it. So um, I hope you enjoy And I hope you enjoy the book as well. It's a great book. Hi, Luke. Luke, Carla. We're here today to talk with Luke Roberts about his book, Performing the Great Peace, Political Space and Open Secrets in Tokugawa, Japan. And that came out with University of Hawaii Press in 2012. Now, Luke, I haven't yet said this to you, but I really loved reading this book. I learned a lot from it. Um, it's, it's a really wonderful book with, I think, very wide-ranging, important, wide-ranging appeal. Or how we think about what it is to do and what it has looked like to do historiography, not just of early modern Japan or Tokugawa Japan, but historiography in general. So it, it was a really wonderful read. And thank you so much for talking with us about it today.
0: Well, thank you so much for your uh, comments. I my goal was to take up a small place, but to interpret it in a way that would have meaning for people uh, um, who were interested in other regions as well.
1: I think that absolutely succeeded, and I hope that'll come out as we talk about this. I think this is um, this is a book that is really important. I think not just for scholars of East Asian studies, but anyone who thinks about historical documents as a form of evidence for telling a story about the past. So. Mm-hmm. Um. So Luke can you start us off a little bit about just saying a little bit about how you got into this field and maybe specifically how you transitioned from the topic of your first book to this book that you um just published.
0: Okay. I uh let's see. How did I get into this field? I uh um I know
1: it's a really broad question. <laughs> yeah. Um but any way you want to answer it is is great.
0: Yeah. Okay. I uh started Let's see, when I was in college, I wanted to be an archaeologist of Mayan civilization. Really? And, uh, uh, but while I was at college, I kind of learned I didn't really want to be an archaeologist. And I just started asking friends who were great professors. And I was at Oberlin College, and, my, and there was this one guy, uh, Ron Dichenso, uh, who taught at uh, Oberlin. everybody said, oh, he's the greatest professor. And so I went and uh, took his class, and he was indeed wonderful. And he taught both Japanese language and Japanese history. And that was my senior year of college. And I I came, he made me fascinated with uh, Japan. So when I graduated, I went to Japan, got a job teaching English uh, to, you know, just uh, to people in factories and that kind of a thing. And while doing that, I became very interested in the history and decided, well, I want to become a historian. And while there, I, I ended up being two years a research student at Tokyo University. And while there, one professor, um, he was asking all of us, what do you want to research? And I said, I didn't really know what I wanted to research. I said, Oh, I'll, I'll research samurai. And, uh, he stood up and left the room because I, all of the students, they all wanted to do like village. stuff And this was the cool thing. And, and to study, um, samurai was a bit uh, strange in, in that context. They stood up and left the room. I wondered what I'd done. And, uh, he, he walks back with a, a stack of 10 manuscripts uh, uh, volumes and put them down in front of me and said, read these. Wow. Next. And then he went on then. And then the next person started saying, and so I looked at these things and I opened them up. And of course it's just uh, uh, uh handwritten stuff. It looked like these worms all scrawled on the spit on a page. I thought, Oh my goodness, what can I do? So after class, I asked him, he says, well, you know, just go up to the, uh, uh um, reference room of the archive, and there they have dictionaries that will help you. And I ended up spending a whole year learning how to read this, but it turned out actually to be a history written in the 1820s of Tulsa Domain and and the retainer band, you know, all of the samurai of that, written by one of its own retainers in the 1830s. And uh, I invested a whole year into reading that. Uh, And uh, while doing so, I went, I traveled to Tulsa, uh, or Kochi, and uh, um, met some wonderful people. And they were very, very helpful and friendly. And I, I had an uh, extremely fine time there. And I, of course, learned that there's a tremendous wealth of documents down there. And so this is how I got interested into Tulsa, which really is sort of the starting point. What documents are there are the starting point for all of the research I've ever done since. And my first book, which... Emerged from my dissertation was on uh, political economy and especially political economic thought uh, about um, uh, largely that created by merchants of Tulsa Domain, and they had this idea of kokueki or the the domainal national prosperity, you know, the the country prosperity of, of Tulsa Domain. And while doing that, this in order to I felt that in order to understand how these people were thinking. Uh, I really had to depend upon their language and see Tulsa as a country because this is the way they talked about it. Uh, And this was very strange to me, of course, at first, because I thought, well, Japan's the country, Tulsa is not the country. But I I gradually, um, being based uh, upon what they were saying, uh, decided, well, that's the best way to interpret it. And so I wrote my first book uh, describing Japan as this international order. Tokugawa era Japan is a, a kind of an international political economic order, sort of an empire, you know, with many small countries within it. And the domains as countries. And, and so and I was very interested in the way people thought about government, what's the purpose of government. So I, I spent very close work uh, with the, the language. And I, even then I discovered that a lot of the the historiographic terminology that we use to talk about Tokugawa period Japan is really modern. And I was kind of surprised by that. I thought, here, I've even in English, we use so many Japanese words like the bakufu and the han and all of these things to describe uh, Tokugawa period Japan. And yet, it wasn't really in the documents. And uh, that was, uh, this may sound strange, but I felt betrayed there was actually a very painful moment for me. And I thought, my goodness, I've, I've invested my so much of my energy into learning how to see this uh, world through these words and these terms, and yet that isn't the way that they saw it themselves. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of disturbing. And I didn't fully play out the implications of that in my first book, and that's one reason why. I'm right. Right. I wrote this book, you know, the performing the great piece was so that I could further explore the implications of the fact that uh, um, the modern, when we use the modern terminology to understand the pre-modern past, it changes things in in, uh, very great ways. And so in writing this book, my goal was to use the language of the past itself about the politics and political behavior as sort of the primary um, way to organize my information and then figure out how to translate that into present concerns and into modern, what I call nationalizing discourses of understanding. And and it turned out to be extremely difficult. I was really surprised at what a difficult project this book was for me. Uh, but it was fun. I mean, I learned uh, quite a lot, I think, uh, in the process. And does does that answer your question, well?
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's wonderful. And I think um, one of the things that's coming out of your description of how you got into this project in the first place is a really um, a really penetrating and really wonderful, for those of us also involved in um, history, degree of self-reflexivity about your process that's very much on the page in the book as well. I mean, I think you're mentioning the use of, is this um to translate yes. as country versus not and the kind of the ways that responses to this move actually made you rethink or you know think in different ways about your own practice and how you think about these forms of space and how to translate these terms was really uh-huh. powerful um, mm-hmm. as, a, as a practicing historian reading this and it's really kind of f- wonderfully freeing actually to see that process on the page here.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Oh, that's good.
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, just just really great. Now, and you sort of, you just brought up also um, one of the really fundamental parts, at least for me as a reader of this book, which is the sensitivity to the terminology of documents. And I think this is a wonderful place for us to get started right into the book itself. Um, Now, you're sort of, the book opens with this really, What starts out being this really wonderfully odd account of a death, (laughs) of, um, from, You say the Castle Diary of Tahara Domain, um, which relates an incident from 1792. And long story short, the the document involves, in one paragraph, um, one death date for the same guy who died, and in another paragraph, a death date like 55 days earlier. Um, And there there doesn't seem to be any conflict um, for the writer of this document in this. And for the reader, this is completely shocking. And for you, you sort of mentioned being surprised by this. Can you talk a little bit about this? This, um, this case and sort of um, why this was so shocking and so important to you.
0: Yeah, it's <laughs> well, what's, um, go-
1: what's going on here, basically. Like, how yeah. do you have two different death dates in the same document written by the same author for the same guy?
0: Yeah, yeah. This was uh, um, uh, a uh, uh, how shall I call it a uh, um, a deathbed adoption ceremony uh, for a daimyo. Uh, And uh, the way these ceremonies worked uh, was because the Tokugawa law stated that a daimyo had to be alive, he had to be of sound mind, uh, when he named his heir, his adopted heir. And this is, of course, for daimyo who didn't have children, uh, a male child at the time, Uh, they uh, would have uh, to name this. If the daimyo himself did not name his heir while alive, then the domain was forfeit and the daimyo's household was ended. And, and when this happened, of course, hundreds or thousands of retainers are out of work, and all of the people who have these deep economic relations with the daimyo's house, the townspeople and the farmers, also end up, uh, 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 frankly, getting, getting hurt very badly by uh, such a such an event. Uh, nevertheless, the Tokugawa law is very strict on this, and so that they send in. The, the chief grand inspector of, of uh, the whole Tokugawa government, along with a whole bevy of doctors who go there to certify that this person is indeed alive and all of that. And they go through the ceremony that this daimyo would indeed impress his seal down on this document saying, I want so and so to be my heir. Wow. And it, the document, so one document records this very severe ceremony in great detail, and everything seems to go fine. Now, the document which I introduce in the uh, book is a recording of that first event, so to speak, that ceremony. But it also, this is part of a letter that sent way back to the home domain, far away from Edel. And the very next paragraph in that letter says, well, as all of you back home know, the Lord really died about 55 days earlier. Uh, But we couldn't tell everybody about this until the adoption ceremony was done. Uh, And uh, it was very, uh, um, like the first paragraph even had this phrase that everybody was in tears and speechless with grief. And it's, it's described with such verisimilitude. It's really uh, uh, something that I, I, I was just quite shocked how, in this one letter, just from one paragraph to another, the worlds, the whole universes of uh, realities had changed. And uh, trying to figure out um, how people could be comfortable with that and why that was meaningful to them. Uh, was, in a sense, a challenge that uh, that this book, in a sense, was set to answer.
1: That's um, great. And there's a whole chapter on this that we'll get to um, on these wonderful, I don't know about wonderful, but these very um, kind of shocking deathbed adoptions and all of the machinations and performances that go into making this make sense. Now, this account sort of opens what's going to be a book-length discussion, a discussion that recurs throughout the whole book, on the importance of the performance of authority to the performance of authority in Tokugawa um, politics. Now... You're arguing here that because the logic by which certain Tokugawa institutions operated has been understudied and underappreciated, um, we, we really don't understand or we've significantly misunderstood the functioning and the nature of the documents that have led us to or that were produced by this system and that have led us to understand this system. Can you say a bit about that?
0: Yes. Yeah. So, for example, with regard to this deathbed adoption ceremony, or the two different death dates, uh, in terms of the Tokugawa clan, the Shogunal House, uh, the documents that would survive in their records need um, to portray the what you might call the ritual reality of things, and uh, um, in order to maintain the authority of the Tokugawa, uh, they need on- only they must acknowledge only what you might call what should happen or the official happenings of things. And uh, conversely, what this means is that what really happens in a sense, in, in the sense of this uh, daimyo's death, cannot be recorded in Tokugawa documents. And so if you're an historian and you only depend upon documents, the uh, formal documents that come through the Tokugawa house, you won't know much uh, about what really went on. Uh, and this is a hierarchical order, uh, so that the daimyo, who in this relationship is inferior to the Tokugawa, will contain a lot of documents in, in the own archives that do relate to what we might say really went on uh, in this event, when the Lord really died, and so on. Uh, and viewed from the daimyo, what the Tokugawa is is an omote. Uh, And the the Japanese term omote is sort of a a ritual interface, a sort of a site of ritual interaction where everybody performs the fact that the superior has all of the authority and the inferior party uh, is indeed nothing but a servant. Uh, uh, And the daimyo space is this uchi or naibun is sort of an inside space, a portion of his own competence that in a sense um, is as long as the daimyo performs subservience to the tokugawa and mote what goes on in the daimyo's own inside space is opaque to the tokugawa eye. And the tokugawa don't look inside that internal space, and they don't really want to know what's going on, at least formally. Formally, they would never acknowledge these discrepancies, for example. Uh, and it's not as if, to get back to this uh, um, adoption Ceremony. It's not as if the Tokugawa officials didn't know what was going on. Everybody knew, uh, and, and it's not true secrecy, uh, but it's a matter of formalized knowledge or uh, uh, you know formalized understandings. And this is why, of course, the you know the subtitle of the book is "Political Space and Open Secrets."
1: Right.
0: Subtitle is is trying to get at this phenomenon that is uh, uh, really fundamental to the tenor and activity of most politics in the Tokugawa period.
1: That's great. And and this is um, you mentioned two things that are actually, that also go on to be absolutely central to every part of the book, at least on my reading of it, the importance (coughs) of space and of terminology. I mean, I think one of the things that I really got out of this is that um, the omote and uh, uchi, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And for listeners, these concepts of omote and uchi and naisho, Yes. go on to be these are central to the argument of the book Um, but this gets at the point that as I read it um, there's no one political space in Tokugawa politics and Tokugawa documents and there, there are multiple modes of space that each require and involve a certain kind of performance of political authority and they're not conflicting necessarily they just produce different versions of what really happened that each satisfy a different kind of, um, need of this multi-layered overlapping spatial political structure of the Tokugawa. Uh
0: Uh-huh. Yes.
1: so it really sort of complicates the question of what really happened, right? Yes, because yes. what really happened <laughs> is the guy both died, um, you know, after this deathbed confession in Omote space, and he also died 55 days earlier in this yeah. other inner space, right? Yes. So it sort of really kind of throws wide open and, and I think invites us to completely rethink um, what is historical truth and how we access that in the documents that we're working with.
0: Yes. Indeed. And then there are layers beneath the daimyo authority, because the daimyo himself is an omote to his own retainers or to his own villagers and commoners. And so that the stories that exist at the daimyo omote are not, uh, any, are not the truth per se, but they're merely the daimyo omote truth. And then there would be different stories so to speak, or different truths lowered down in the hierarchy as well so it's just layers and layers of of these uh, stories in a sense
1: and it's it's a kind of the you mentioned the importance of open secrets um and Mm -hmm. this is the subtitle and it's um in a way I, i think one of the things that as at least i read that you're arguing here is the it's the um it's a certain kind of cultivation of a certain kind of disobedience that actually allows political order mm-hmm. to be maintained. Right? I mean, it's sort of built yeah. into the system and this multi-spatial layered system. So terminology um, also we sort of as we as we move into the book, terminology is extraordinarily important. And you've already mentioned how important thinking about terminology and the use of terminology both by modern contemporary historians and also in in documents was central for bringing you into this topic in the first place. Um, As in terms of thinking about craft, um, you talk very explicitly in the introduction about your own decisions to translate certain terms and to leave certain terms untranslated and transliterated because this is such an important part of the historian's craft. Can you say a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, that's, I think it's the most difficult part of the job, <laughs> and because uh, uh, on the one hand, uh, because I mean, at a fundamental level, and this is not merely it, just changing words, but in terms of describing what happens before, I mean, the, the fundamental process of being an historian is is a translator, in a sense, is 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 taking something that you can understand that you've learned from the past, and then reshaping it and refitting it so that people today and 2012 can uh, understand it and hopefully enjoy it, and this is the fundamental nature of the process. And so, to the degree possible, I want to turn everything into say English and into things that are easy to understand for people of the present, uh, and 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 to make it as clear and uh, as possible, uh, you know, for this moment of people reading, uh, and yet. Um it's a translation is in a sense a dialogue, and so that you have to uh address quite explicitly and openly the the, the point of your respect for the voices uh that you learn from that are back there. Uh and so uh because of that problem, I, I would say I muddled uh through, I would choose some words that I decided were so central, such as omote and uchi and then naisho, which is sort of this informal negotiation that ties together the omote ritual interface and then the uh, uchi, the inside uh, um, uh, portions of competence. Those words were uh, so important that I usually used them in Japanese, and so I asked my readers to kind of learn them. Uh, There were a number of other words which I would translate for the most part, but. I uh, even then I would sometimes from time to time use a Japanese term because I want to remind the reader that a translation is never perfect it only captures w- some aspect of a word and precisely because the translation can only um, translate an aspect of the word I'm rather against making what you might call official lists of this is how you translate this term into English and this is how you translate that term into English and let's all agree on it and sometimes we see these kind of Uh, movements you know happening within our historical field but i think there's a problem there because uh, that doesn't address the issue of the um uh um, multiple meanings that the words have and they really only overlap in a kind of venn diagram kind of way there isn't a one-to-one parody to the words and uh you really have to respect the context of utterance uh in order to truly understand the word um and one of the contexts is the imagined space within which the word takes on meaning, and this, of course, is you know, a key issue in the whole book. That in modern historiography, we try to make all words understandable within an imagined space of the nation. Uh, in this case, Japan, and so that the words have to take on meaning as soon as you utter it, the the listener assumes, oh, this is the Japanese. Whatever, you know, whatever it is you're talking about. Uh, But in the Tokugawa period, a a tremendous number of words did not take on meaning within the space of Japan, but they took upon, they took their meaning within a kind of an imagined space of one of these naibun or inside uh, uchi um, um, political spaces. And without recognizing that, uh, you misunderstand a tremendous amount of what's happening in the Tokugawa period, I think.
1: That's great. Um, and the, the whole, I think the, the last chapter and the conclusion really mm-hmm. get into in depth um, these issues of the kind of the the space of the nation or the imagined space of the in, the nation being a context in which um, mm. historiography, even Japanese historiography, kind of rewrote the meanings of these terms and read them back into Tokugawa texts in or Tokugawa history in ways that you're, I think, very convincingly demonstrating here don't give us a full picture of the way political authority was actually constructed here. So, okay, so talking about space, um, as we move um, into the book, I think the first chapter, um, The Geography of Politics, introduces us to um, layers of space and levels of space that are all going to go on to become important um, for the, the later um parts of the story later on in the book, and these are um, geographies or geographical space, the space of the house, the space of Mm -hmm. occupational status as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, there there are so many things in this chapter that are fascinating, but one of the things that particularly um, stood out to me is the importance of the space of the household, Um, and its relationship to the performance of political subservience and political authority. And as we'll see, the household will go on to be really important also when we see sort of later case studies. Um, Can you talk um, for a bit about, within this context, the importance of the space of the household as a space for the negotiation of political relationships? (laughs) And I'm thinking in particular of the example, um, you um, you give us the example of a samurai wife, um, fukuoka Sho, who like, oh, yes. kills some guy for being rude to her, right? And there's this whole
0: yeah. like,
1: dance about whether she was justified or not, and who's responsible. And so it's that kind of thing I'm thinking about that's actually really
0: oh, okay. striking. So actually the physical architectural house then, in the a yeah, sense. Yeah,
1: yeah, the physical architectural space of the house.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so houses uh, at this time uh, were divided into um, uh, front portions would have a a portion called the omote, which, of course, is this very same term that's very key to Tokugawa politics. And this is the part of house into which it would have formal interactions with guests and outsiders. Uh, And there usually were very, a lot of restrictions about anybody moving beyond the omote into the uh um back of the house the oku uh, uh, portion of the house and even the the grand tokugawa palace you know this enormous building with hundreds and hundreds of rooms was also divided into its amote and oku and uh a very uh, um uh you know moderately wealthy uh, commoner even would have houses divided in the and oku and so this incident with fukuoka sho um she uh, murdered a she killed a man who was uh, um, uh, of uh, much lower status he was like a foot soldier, so not really full full rank samurai whereas she herself was a samurai um, and, the, the, and her husband who who was of course the retainer samurai he was away way off in Edo and she was back in the hometown of kochi and she killed him because she said he was rude to her uh, and it was legal in this world for uh, Samurai to um, execute people of lower status if they were deliberately rude. And so on that ground, she had the right to kill him. And indeed when she's finally, and she is punished when she's finally punished, the domain explicitly states that she had every right to kill him because he was rude. Uh, Nevertheless, she's punished because she had let this man into the back of the house. This didn't happen in the Amultek. But because she had let him back into the back of the house, that she herself had committed a grave fault, and so um, and and not merely um, did the punishment go to her, but then all of the men servants of the residence were punished because it was their duty to prevent any um, outsider from going to the back of the house, and even her husband, way off an adult, because he officially is the head of the household, uh, was punished. Um, because he's supposed to be responsible for making sure all members of his household behave appropriately. So the household itself is a legal unit, um, as well as an architectural um, uh, unit, so to speak, or an architectural thing. And uh, these two things are very highly interrelated um, or, or you know closely tied together. So this whole notion of the importance of Uchi and Omote is... Uh, um, uh, imbued in daily life all the time. It's not just something that happens at moments of politicking, so to speak, but it really structures daily social relations, and therefore they become very meaningful and deep, I think, in terms of political interaction.
1: And that was a really, um, that example in particular for me, just because I love the idea that she could kill some guy for being rude to her, but, but even, uh, you know, this example, uh, I think, uh, really... <laughs> Um, There's a great job early in the book of bringing home the fact that these um, relationships of um, Uchi and Omote are not just, you know, sort of operative, as you just said, in Mm -hmm. official documents um, that have something to do with the court, but that are very much part of the mundane life of people Mm -hmm. who are um, living under Tokugawa society, in Tokugawa society. Now, another thing that um, comes up in this chapter that also can, um, is very strikingly important later on as well is the importance of naming practices um, as ways of um, performing a kind of political space. Can you say a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, yeah once what you might call subjective identity changes depending upon what space. One is kind of moving in or living in and operating in. And this is uh, um, uh, um, evident uh, in the use of names and, and so that especially elite uh, Japanese such as daimyo have a tremendous number of names uh, and each name is kind of operative in a certain space, at a certain omote um, uh, situation of relations. And so the the uh, um, For example, the ruler of Tulsa Domain, when he's uh, facing the imperial Omote, uh, or the the kind of ritual space of ritual interaction with the imperial clan, uh, he is a Fujiwara uh, name. And he has to have this aristocratic name in order to even be able to interact with uh, the imperial clan. And so this is one name that he has, and he doesn't use the Yamauchi name which is the name by which we modern historians know the, the clan. Also vis-a-vis the Tokugawa, the Tokugawa tried to incorporate a lot of um, daimyo into their own household by giving them the Matsudaida name, which is uh, kind of a, it is, an early version of the Tokugawa name. This is what it was, or earlier manifestation, early name for the Tokugawa clan. And so that they gave the Yamauchi daimyo the the Matsudaida name, as they did, of course, to many, many other daimyo. And from that point, whenever the Yamauchi send a message to the Tokugawa, they can't use the Yamauchi name. They have to use the Matsudaida name uh, um, to uh, do that. And And yet, in their inner space, in their own side space, they always use just the Yamauchi name. The daimyo themselves do this to their retainers, Many of the retainers have their own family names, but once they're granted the daimyo, say, Yamauchi name, then they have to use that vis-a-vis the daimyo. But in their own houses, they use their own names. So this is one aspect of naming that, that um, is, uh, helps us reveal what you might call the various political spaces or so the various omote. Uh, another aspect of naming is, um, reflects to a person's power and gender. Um, uh, and, uh, so that men, women, especially, uh, um, at a higher Omote, they can only be known as the wife of some man or the daughter of some man and their own names just cannot be used. And this is in a way indicating that women don't really have an Omote identity, but they're rather completely subsumed within an Uchi space. Uh, An inside space. And indeed, a lot of the words that even today that we use to talk about women, such as kanai, which literally means inside the house, or okusan, the person of the back of the house. Um, Or uh, um, in the Edo period, we don't use it today so much, but another word is sama. In the Edo period, naisho uh, literally means the person who kind of controls the inside. Um, These are all words for women that, that um, all um, uh, reflect the fact that it's, it's very difficult for women to have a higher Omote identity. Um, uh, heirs for men, if you become a direct heir of somebody who has an Omote, then suddenly you're allowed to your your own personal name uh, can be uh, your formal use name, and then every even personal names people have formal use names and then informal use names. you can use your formal use name at a higher or, but all of the younger brothers would have to use either informal use names uh, showing their lower status um, or uh, um, or just be identified as son uh, um, for example in, in extreme situations. commoners could not have um, names at all,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: in higher omote, many people misinterpret this, that uh, a lot of times when you hear about Japan, you say, well, yeah, most commoners didn't have family names, and they only got them in the Meiji period. Mm-hmm. Uh, that isn't really true. Um, what that really means is that commoners weren't allowed to use their family names in documents presented higher up to a higher omote. And many of them, if they were families of you know, wealth, the kind of, they had their own identity that they would last generations as a household. They would have family names for inside use, but not for use at higher up. So the, these, I think, are some of the issues um, uh, associated with naming and the importance of this uh, compartment and political space uh, that ruled the Tokugawa order. That's
1: great. Thank you. And speaking of misunderstandings, um, yeah. this actually kind of brings us into really uh, an interesting um, aspect of the next chapter. Um So the next chapter looks at um, the information regime of the Tokugawa government and in particular looks at um, the nature of information collection in terms of both accuracy, sort of judgments of accuracy, but also um, in its role in guaranteeing the kind of subservience of the daimyo and the maintenance of peace. So Mm -hmm. um, what you do here um, is you give us examples of... um, touring inspections by Tokugawa officials, and other means of gathering information that were used as part of this kind of system of control. Now, um, the daimyo, you said, often supplied inaccurate information, but with the full complicity of Tokugawa officials From very early on in the period, and the reason why I preface this by saying misunderstanding is that um, you tell us here that um, though some or many historians have interpreted this as a sign of, or have interpreted the sort of supplying by the daimyo to the Tokugawa um, sort of uh, political authorities of inaccurate information as a sign of decline of power and authority, of the mm-hmm. State. And in fact, you show here, this was actually happening very early on. And not only was it happening early on, but it was kind of an institutionalized part of the whole structure and kind of part of this system of open secrets and this relationship yes. between the um, Omote and Uchi. So can you um, can you say a little bit about that for us? is sort of um, the, the fact that this is not a sign of systematic decline. And um, in what ways were, um, you know, was this important to the maintenance of authority?
0: Yeah. Um, uh, naturally, many, many more documents survive from the 18th century and the 19th century and the latter half of the uh, Tokugawa period. And so many scholars see in these uh, uh, time periods where the documents survive in much greater numbers all of this evidence that the, for example, the daimyo are not being honest with the Tokugawa when they send up reports. And uh, uh, because documents from the 17th century are so much fewer by comparison, uh, uh, a lot of uh, scholars, I think, perhaps quite naturally assumed that this is a sign of declining Tokugawa authority. Um, And so I wanted to kind of test this by looking as deeply as I could into 17th century documents and indeed some right from the very start you know from as early as 1605 or whatever uh to see how information was managed and what i think i discovered is is that right from the very start uh um there's a lot of um prevarication or or not you know not full disclosure going on and information submitted to the Tokugawa, despite the fact that there are indeed many documents, especially Tokugawa multi-documents, which says, you are going to tell me everything, and you cannot do this, you cannot do that, and you'll be completely accurate. And, and uh, um, if an historian were just to read the Tokugawa multi-documents, it looks like a really fearsome uh, autocratic, uh, very powerful regime. Uh, but uh, when one can find uchi documents, or documents surviving on the daimyo side, Looking at the process of information production and sharing, you find not only that a lot of the information is not accurate, but that there's a tremendous amount of negotiation with Tokugawa officials over what they can say, uh, over what they ought to say. Uh, And uh, this nice show, this informal negotiation, um, and records of these generally only survive in the Daimyo documents, and they obviously don't survive in the Tokugawa side because the Tokugawa side is very invested in this performance of its authority and its power. Uh, And so that if somebody on the higher end, on the Tokugawa end started joking around how they knew that they were being lied to, they themselves would be punished. And obviously the people that they were relating to would be punished because this would really sully the dignity of the regime and the power of the regime. Uh, And so this, this so is sort of um, uh, because of that fact. Um, you have to use Tokugawa documents with great uh, um, care and uh, perhaps suspicion, <laughs> uh, as you know, as 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 to what the content really reflects. I mean, if one were not to regard it with suspicion, one, the way one should regard it is: yes, this is the ritual truth. This is what the Tokugawa wanted to hear. And this is what they want to portray. That's really the most natural way to uh, read Tokugawa documents. And one of my favorite um, documents from this section was uh, dealing with the touring inspectors of Tulsa Domain. And so they have the uh, um, Tokugawa touring inspectors, so they travel through all of the domains of Japan, and their job is to make sure that government is good and everything is, is uh, going right. And they themselves are told that they aren't supposed to have many interactions with uh, the local samurai, but they're really just there to talk to the people. Uh, and we can find documents on the Tulsa side all promising, oh, yes, of course, we will have no interactions with you, and we won't do anything. And the, and the officials on the Tokugawa side say, yeah, um, oh, yes, we'll follow our orders very carefully. But you look at the way it really happens, and it's nothing of the sort. I don't think they ever really talk to a single commoner um, the whole time. And... Uh, One little document was my favorite was that although the touring inspectors are supposed to plan their own route and stay and and where they stay and all of that. In reality, the the, uh, Tulsa officials um, select all of the houses and they'll select really lovely places like the Daimyo's traveling residence or or, uh, um, Samurai homes or things like that. And there's this cute little marks beside each of these residences will say, say, this is a village headman's house. Or say this is a merchant's house, or whatever, and uh, it, it helps you imagine what's going on. And it's not as if the uh, um, touring inspectors, however stupid they might be, uh, could not recognize a, traveling, a daimyo's traveling residence for a uh, village headman's house. You know, they, they would know the difference immediately. But they would play along, and uh, and I'm sure in their interactions, you know, they would they would say something like, "Oh, what you know, what a, what a lovely home your village headsman has."
1: That was great. One of the things that was uh, also wonderful about these um, these cases that you show us here of the um, touring inspectors is this sort of the importance of, I think, really interestingly for me, the importance of precedent. And so it seemed like in trying to figure out how far um, local officials could actually push these rules, sort of how much could they prepare, how much could they bend, they were sort of looking to what was happening in neighboring regions, right? So, for example... Yes is it okay if we serve them sake? And another guy's like, oh, well, it's okay, but over there, you know, you can serve them, but you can't drink it yourself. So we can serve them, but we can't drink it you know, So it's,
0: yeah. um, I love that. And yeah, and it's thanks to that that we have so many records of this behavior. And if it weren't for that, that they were constantly wanting to check for precedence and learn what their neighbors are doing and all of that, a lot of this would have disappeared from history, so to speak.
1: It's fascinating. Uh, it's sort of this sort of codification of kind of... Um, neighborly gossip almost. I mean a kind of you know a more official or a more you kind know, of a, a better version of that. But it was just it's yeah. um it's very exciting to read accounts of documents like this. Um for uh-huh. um so now this sort of um the because I don't want to keep you for three hours, which would easily get you for this book, um, I'll just say for listeners, the next chapter is um, uh, uh, called Politics of the Living Dead, and it focuses on these deathbed adoptions. And I'm not going to actually ask you any more about this, um, but I will just say for listeners, wonderful, wonderful stuff in here, um, all kinds of just fantastic stories. And um, and I loved this chapter. and Oh, great. We could talk for hours about that. But what I want to ask you about, um, what uh, I want to make sure to talk about is something that happens in the next chapter, territorial border disputes. Now, yeah. in this chapter, you're looking at the operation of the Tokugawa legal system in the resolution of territorial disputes, both between <clears throat> villages and between daimyo. And so this plays out... Um, You look at two cases of conflicts between daimyo over territorial boundaries on two small islands, and then in the case of a shrine or temple complex. But there's another case um, that you raise, and this is what I want to ask you about, um, which is a case of uh, villagers using the politics of Omote and Naisho to defeat their own daimyo.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: Um, now, could you could you explain a little bit about this case because it involves two things that um, absolutely I was I was almost laughing out loud when I read this and this is, um, palanquin, palanquin suits and barging in suits. Okay. So first, Uh could you tell us about this particular case of these villagers kind of manipulating, um, these politics? And can you also, um, as part of this, perhaps explain what are palanquin suits and what are barging in suits and why are they so fantastic?
0: Okay. Um, This case was, there were two villages within the Tahara domain of the Daimyo Miyake clan, and uh, they were having a border dispute over controlling some uh, land that sort of existed between them. One of them wanted to develop this land, and the other village wanted to keep the land for uh, fertilizer and for uh, um, uh, firewood and for pine needles, which, interestingly enough, was a, a valuable product at the time. The... One of the villages was not satisfied with the daimyo's, the, the domain's uh, decision on this. And so then they decided that they would uh, um, appeal to the Tokugawa government high court. Now, this was illegal. Uh, there really is no uh, formal um, formally acceptable way for commoners within a daimyo's realm to appeal to the Tokugawa government. Uh, and the laws are very clear on this. Nevertheless, this kind of thing happened all the time. And the Tokugawa uh, government is flooded with requests, uh, appeals by villagers who live solely within daimyo domains. Uh, and there develops this um, illegal system uh, of, uh, of uh, uh, appeal and judgment uh, in the Tokugawa period that's tremendously important, of course, to uh, um, throughout the whole realm. And this depends upon certain kinds of Um, activities of the commoners, including these palanquin suits and the barging in suits. And what a palanquin suit is, is the uh, commoners from some daimyo domain will approach the um, palanquin of some high court official um, of the Tokugawa government and they have to run and get the um, uh, um, uh, suit, which they've written down uh, ideally they, it has to be able to, to touch the body, the person of the, uh, um, uh, the uh, high official. Uh, and if it touches him, then he has to, in a sense, read it and accept it. And the reality is as many times that they would run up and one of the guards would grab it, but the guard would still hand it over to the official and the official would read this. Uh, but because this is illegal, immediately the person who presented the suit would be bound up. They would tie him up with rope, which was a very degrading, um, uh, sign so to speak. It's like you know putting one in handcuffs or whatever. Uh and uh, uh and then they they often would be sent to the residents of the Daimyo uh this realm of whom they uh were at and told to await uh a word. And then the higher officials would uh read it and then they'd decide what to do. Uh sometimes uh they would most often frankly they would say we don't want to hear it and they'd send it back. But usually, at least that's the official message, probably what really happened is that they they would send an official message saying, we don't want to hear this case. But the messenger would probably consult with domain officials and say, listen, can't you do something about this? Your people are so upset that they're coming all the way to Edo to make this appeal. And then the, the Danios uh, government himself, of course, might have to reconsider what they're doing. <clears throat> but because the um, this kind of a suit presented either to a palanquin, another, you asked about the barging in suit. Another thing which uh, um, commoners might do is just, they would barge into the residence of some high Tokugawa official and again, present their appeal uh, there. And again, they'd be tied up and uh, sent back. Uh, the Tokugawa law for this is it's a death penalty uh, for such a thing. Uh, And so the people go knowing that the formal law says that to uh, um, engage in this kind of activity will cost you your life. But if you actually look at how these things happen, and, for example, the case that I look at, they must have done it 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 times, just an incredible number of of tremendous persistence, constantly um, uh, presenting and representing and representing uh, their uh, um, uh, appeals to the government officials. And it really was their persistence that finally made the Tokugawa officials come in, still informally, uh, and, and muscle muscle around the daimyo and say, listen, you're going to change this um, uh, appeal. Uh, but because the local, for some reason, I don't quite know why, the Miyake daimyo at this time was very reluctant to change its um, um, judgment. And This irritated the Tokugawa quite well. There was even discussion about whether they would disenfief the Miyake because of this, because they'd failed to manage, they'd failed to maintain the peace, in a sense, and failed to manage this problem internally. Uh, And so this was a much more extreme example of this kind of activity than usually happens. Usually it resolves uh, much more peacefully and, frankly, without anybody dying. Uh, But in this case, the domain itself um, did execute. The um, uh, one or two I forget I actually forget, but at least one of the uh, uh, leaders um, of this, I, I think, because the whole event was so painful to the uh, daimyo's dignity um, and all of that, and a number of uh, commoners were banished from the domain as a result of this. The punishments were quite severe, but the villagers won. Uh, and uh, an interesting thing about Tokugawa law is that. The uh, villagers usually win, uh, and it, it's uh, it's usually a painful process. It costs a lot of money and time and, and jail time for many people. Uh, and on extreme cases, it, may, it might even involve in you know, a terrible physical punishment and execution on behalf of one person on behalf of the village. But the judgment uh, very often ends up uh, um, respecting the villagers' wishes. Uh, now, in terms of the this book, to me, the most interesting thing is that all of this activity, which is formally illegal, very clearly uh, should not be done in the Tokugawa law uh, is uh, systematized, and everybody accepts it or acknowledges it informally uh, they don 't carry out things according to the way the the formal law should uh, should be, uh, and they 're constantly trying to suppress. Um, the uh, um, disorder, uh, and the daimyo themselves are responsible for any disorder that kind of pops out of their domain. So that, the, so that this order not only gives the daimyo power, but it also they're hostages to this great peace as well. Mm-hmm. And the villagers know how to use this situation, uh, and and I, I don't mean to make this sound beautiful or anything, because it indeed is a very oppressive system and all. Uh, but nevertheless, this is how politics happened, and, and one can see how um, it does give uh, people in very low positions certain forms of power, what kinds of power they have, and therefore you can un- analyze and understand their political activity by understanding the system.
1: Okay. Now, another uh, source of political power that you raise here, and this is in the next chapter, which was really interesting and surprising what you talk about, what we might conventionally think of as religious institutions, right? Particularly Buddhism, to some extent, Christianity is kind of a contrast case and then Shinto. And you're really showing here how um, sort of transformations in the way um, these entities and these sort of religious, we can call them, I'm using scare quotes for uh, listeners who can't see, sort of religious um, entities are treated from Tokugawa and all the way through into Meiji. How, how these transformations actually um, sort of represent transformations in the larger political structure as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we don 't have too much time, but um, because it 's so important here, um, can you talk a little bit about the um, the importance of Buddhism as a dominant religious form in the Tokugawa and sort of why it was so important and why it was so dominant
0: yeah um, well it was it was <laughs> it was absolutely the wealthiest of all of these in uh, uh, you know religious uh, um, uh, Organizations and institutions and things, and it becomes uh, important. um, It becomes absolutely dominant. I mean, it was always. I mean, it was important from the very start of the Tokugawa period. This is actually. I feel like it's very hard to answer this question, but um,
1: I know it's it's hugely broad. I'm I'm trying trying to get at the. I mean, I'll be more specific. I'm sorry, I was I was so broad. You t- you emphasize here um, the importance of Buddhism as it's um, an entity that's got an emphasis on combination, and so this yes. is a religious structure that's not that doesn't gain authority through exclusion, but rather oh, through combination and how this really. Um, this differed from Christianity, and one of the reasons why Christianity had, you know, had such a problem getting a foothold in the Tokugawa authorities was not necessarily just the the ideas, but that it was about exclusion of other I- religious yes. ideas, and that didn't um, cohere with this larger political structure um, of the Tokugawa. So, uh, having said yeah. that, um, maybe sort of in the time we have, this um, as Shinto. So where does Shinto fit in here? Um,
0: Yeah. I I think politically, Shinto is very much a kind of a junior partner. I mean, uh, you know, this this kami worship and all, and uh, this worship of these uh, uh, deities as kami, uh, generally exists within the fold of Buddhist institutions, and and because Buddhism has this combinatory kind of drive where it kind of incorporates difference. And says, well, this is a new manifestation of, of something that we've already been saying. sort of, you know, what you might call is kind of like the knee jerk approach to it, to encountering difference rather than saying, oh, this is the devil or this is, you know, something uh, that we need to exclude. Um, uh, the Shinto. And the kami deities are, are very, very closely related to imperial history and to local history within Japan. And it's one of the ways by which people, in a sense, created history through ritual was by deifying this mountain or this individual or or uh, um, the, this kind of a thing. And I, I think as literacy expanded in the Tokugawa period, which it did greatly, and people are starting writing Lots and lots of stories, and reading lots and lots of stories, and kind of crafting this imagined uh, entity of Japan. Uh, a lot of the narratives are in terms of, of deities, and and uh, and increasingly, you see that they start doing their best to tie these deities to the old imperial histories uh, of, say, the Kojiki and the Nihon Shoki, and all of this, and trying to relate whatever deity. Happen, you know, happen to be local to the imperial story. Story, this becomes one of the ways by which people start imagining um, a uh, a Japan as a land of the of the kami, a land, a land of these uh, kind of shintō deities. And the daimyo get in on it too. Uh, and so, uh, as more and more people like to understand the world in terms of this shrine worship and these kami deities and, and this kind of a thing, the uh, Daimyos increasingly start uh, um, deifying the ancestors of the, the the founding ancestor of the Daimyo house. And they start developing, uh, in some cases, not in all cases, because each of these Daimyo realms are really quite different. But in some Daimyo realms, they start developing things that uh, have, have a lot of the element of state Shinto. Um, and uh, to my mind, the most fascinating thing about it is a lot of it is... Uh, uh, um, rather than being hierarchical or, or, or status-based, it's, it's more kind of an equality of subjecthood where everybody uh, equally should be devoted to this deity, which more models, I think, the uh, early 20th century forms of uh, um, uh, Shinto spirituality in Japan. And, and so I like to see it actually as a kind of a, uh, a precursor or a resource which Meiji people then used in creating their own um, uh, state Shinto no now in terms of the this book um, the most interesting thing is that all of this was illegal the Tokugawa say again and again you you may not um, deify your ancestors and you may not make new shrines you may not make new festivals you may not make new temples for that matter and yet um, all of these do it and so cases is even people who are serving as the temple shrine magistrate in the Tokugawa government who are constantly telling other daimyo, you may not create a new deity uh, or a new temple are in their own domains creating deities out of their ancestors and new festivals and all of that and uh uh, it's uh I, i think from a modern perspective it looks ridiculous uh but again you know within this uh, political order it made a lot of sense to them and it was a way to kind of keep it contain the potential for disorder of this uh, these kind of newer forms of worship from uh, upsetting the tokugawa authority and the tokugawa regime
1: That's great. Well, Luke, we've taken up a ton of your time. (laughs) So um, I just, I won't ask you about this final chapter about history and historians, um, but I will say on the record for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read this book, every historian should read this chapter. Um, This is a chapter that looks at the way that these concerns about Uchi and Omote play out in the space of Tokugawa historiography, looks at various levels of and sort of... of, um, various ways that the history of the Tokugawa was refracted at different political levels um, and sort of speaks, I think, very elegantly, very eloquently, and um, very openly about the ways that um, historiography has shaped what we know about this and also that the um, the way we understand documents of the Tokugawa, both the Omote documents and the other documents um, have shaped what we can know about this and what we have known and there's this just wonderful example here of um, a historian uh, Watanabe Hiroshi you mentioned um, his, de- his decision to actually rewrite chapters of his book um, because he decided that he had gotten it wrong um, and he, he had he changed the way he understood. Um, the way some of these um, uh, concepts worked, and, and I think that's just a wonderful example of, again, this kind of self-reflexivity and
0: Yeah, his work was a great inspiration to me
1: mm-hmm. Yeah So, so every, I'll just sort of mention that as a, um, this chapter particularly spoke to me um, in terms of its um, the way you handled the craft of history and the way the craft of history has played out in this case So, um, Luke, there's a ton in this book that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about, and there's so much more in here that we could talk about. Is there any part of the book that we haven't yet had a chance um, to go into that you would like to make sure that you mention for the benefit of listeners, either those who have read the book or those who haven't yet had the chance to read the book?
0: No, I I guess one thing perhaps is in the conclusion, I I talk a lot about the difference between um, the Tokugawa terminology and understandings and the modern understandings. And one thing I find that when I talk about, for example, the importance of Omote and Naisho in the Tokugawa period, very many Japanese scholars will immediately respond to me, Ah, Omote and Ura, Um, and Ura means the backside or the hidden part of things. And today, people in this kind of unitary space of Japan, or there's also tatemai and honne is another uh, dichotomy that people uh, use to talk about modern Japan a lot. Um, these imply that one is true and the other is somehow false or slightly corrupt or not quite true. Um, and that reflects, I think, the, uh, a very modern perspective on this issue. But in the Edo period, these, what you might call these situational truths of a multi-truth and Naiban truth, in that time period, they didn't regard one as false and the other as true, but they're rather situationally true. And uh, I, I think it's very important for modern readers to understand this um, uh, at a deep level as you're reading my book or, you know, this book and thinking about the evidence of the uh, uh, Tokugawa period is how much our, uh, under, attitudes towards this kind of activity has changed. It sort of exists today, but it's no longer an ideal form of politics. Today, it's kind of slightly corrupt, uh, so to speak.
1: Right. And and that's um, another thing I think that this um, your book invites us to think about, which I haven't had a chance to ask you, but I'll just put out there um, is sort of to what extent that these. Phenomena that you are talking about here in the context of Tokugawa politics might translate into other early modern contexts and might help those of us working with other yeah. kinds of documents. So, actually, what do you? Um, what's your take on that? I mean, how transferable yeah. do you think these insights are to other early modern contexts?
0: Yeah, it's. Um, I, I think there's great potential for it. Um, because the, the importance of ritual, when I think of China, of course, you know, and the, the way the Confucian scholars talk about government and all and how, what a great importance they put upon the use of ritual for uh, good government and that kind of a thing. I think there's a tremendous uh, potential, uh, a, a tremendous similarity between the way they, you know, the the, the uh, rituals would operate and the omote, which is in a sense, in essentially kind of rituals of subservience. and uh, and. In uh, um, early modern medieval Europe, um, I, I've, you know, I've read a number of books where I saw a lot of things that felt very similar uh, um, uh, to me um, uh, in, in in the importance of maintaining dignity and honor and face uh, as uh, part of politics. I, so that I, I think there is uh, there are places where there's kind of a harmony or you know a, a, an ability to extend. Uh, you know, fruitfully kind of uh, put these uh, situations into dialogue.
1: I completely agree. One thousand percent. I agree with you. So, <laughs> so what's next for you, Luke? What are you working on now? And um, what's what's inspiring you at the moment? With oh, well,
0: I'm working on a uh, biography of a uh, samurai, a guy named Mori Yoshiki, who is a, a samurai of Tulsa domain, again, uh, who lived from about 1760 to about 1805 or so. And uh, he has this incredibly well-recorded life. He, his father kept a diary, a really great diary. So I, I see my man from uh, the moment he's born, uh, and even earlier, you know, like when his sisters are born and stuff like this. And he kept a couple diaries. About three of his friends kept diaries. His son uh, kept a diary and also wrote my man's, his father's uh, biography. And he asked the chief manservant of my man to write stories about His death is, of course, my man. So I have this life that's really, really richly recorded uh, from many different perspectives. One of the coolest things this guy did, uh, the son, um, his father died when, uh, you know, my man died when uh, the son was only about four or five years old. So he didn't really personally know his father all that well. He learned his father through his diary, actually. And about 15 years later, after his father's death, he invited all of his father's old friends to a party. And he read them sections of his father's diary. And he said, this is all I know of my dad. Tell me more. And so each of them told him stories and he wrote them all down. It was such a wonderful document. Um, so what I'm doing now is doing a biography, but kind of as a form of social history. I'm really interested in all of his kind of networks of interaction and and his ties with the people around him and how people would talk about things and look at each other the way they would uh, um, kind of regard each other and write about each other. So, and, and through this, uh, I, I hope to be able to get a, a really nice kind of a thick picture of of uh, uh, the life of a samurai. I'm probably just going to call this book A, a Samurai's Life. Um, uh, and so it's kind of a different type of uh, project I'm into.
1: That's wonderful. Um, that sounds totally fascinating. And it also, it's it sounds like just the kind of sensitivity to sort of multiple overlapping, multi-layered versions of truth um, about a kind of historical event or historical actor that's so richly um, that you give to us so richly here. So good luck with that. And, be thank in you. touch when that's done, and we'll talk about that one uh, for, for New Books in East Asian Studies.
0: Hopefully it won't take me as long as this one did.
1: Well, well thank you so much, Luke. Thanks for taking the time. It's As I've already said, it's a wonderful book, and I hope um, all the listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it go out and read the book. And I think it's also a very important book, so thank you so much.
0: Okay, thank you very much for uh, this opportunity. I'm really uh, grateful.
1: My pleasure. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.